Hey, so we're wrapping up this series uh, this week and next week. We have just a couple more weeks to wrap it up. And through this series, our hope, and if you haven't been here, then you'll catch up very quickly. We'll get you up to speed without any issue at all. If you're watching online, you haven't been tuning in, we got you covered. Our hope has been to develop and engage in a daily habit of spiritual reflection as we hope to live and love like Jesus in this world. Our desire here is to give you a couple of tools and maybe even the desire or even the motivation to be thoughtful about the way we live and the way we love so that we can take something of who Jesus is into the world around us. And God has given you the ability to do this and so often we're on autopilot, we're just doing what's next, we gotta take care of this, we gotta take care of that. My to-do list is as long as your to-do list and the people that are around us have so many needs and demands, we can often find ourselves just going from day to day without giving much thought to how we live and how we love. But God's made you for more than just to-do lists. He's made you more for so much more than the things that we use to get through our day or even trying to make it through a doldrum full of cold winter days. God has more in mind for you than that. In fact, the, the way the wise uh, Solomon Proverbs says it this way, ponder the path of your feet. In fact, let's say that together. You ready? Ponder the path of your feet. In other words, this is the way we said it last week. Who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? Over time and as we go, this is the question that we want to ask. And this is my guess, that most of us severely underestimate what we can accomplish in a few years, and we greatly overestimate who we can become in the period of, well, the month of January, any year. And so we set resolutions and they fail, and we decide we're gonna move a direction and that doesn't happen, and we simply repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, and then five years from now, we're the same person. That's not what God has in mind for us. God created you in a very unique way, but he also wants to move us to become as the New Testament says, conformed to the image of Christ. And I believe this is a a return to the garden, if you will, that we become who we were made to be originally. And so we want to ponder the path of our feet. And when we started this series, we made this observation, and some of you, I think, resonated with it because you found yourself on one end of the spectrum or another. We said that as we're thinking about reflection and who we're becoming, all of these kinds of things, that some of us are not very open to critique. Now, that may not be you, but I bet it's somebody that you know, okay? And that person you know, they, they might say this, they might even say it this way, but they probably have a lot of ways of saying it. You know, I am who I am, you kind of get what you get. You know, I mean, I, I've been this way for a long time. There's no way I'm gonna change now. It's worked out for me so well, not so much for the people in my family, but for me, it's worked out great. And so this is just who I am. Not much is gonna change. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. So we have a thousand ways of saying this. This is a reaction to maybe some pressure to be somebody different than you are. And God doesn't want you to be somebody different than he created you to be. He just wants the version that looks an awful lot like his fingerprints that he put on you originally. He wants that to come out. And so we use this to kind of build up our defenses and just say, well, you know what? If you don't like what you see, then move on. It's fine. You'll find somebody else. Don't worry about it. I am who I am. You get what you get. And some of us are on the other end of the spectrum, we said. And the other end of that spectrum is this. You know what? I'm trying to meet the expectations of a dozen different people. Just get in line, I guess. Because between my boss and my spouse and my kids and my neighbors and my friends and the list could go on and on, I feel like I'm not pleasing anybody. 
And maybe you find yourself living a life where you haven't met anybody's expectations, but you just move from one disappointed person to the next. And if you're like most of us, we ping pong back and forth between these two ideas. We get tired of this, this wears us out, we feel weary from this, and we end up back in this place. You know what, I am who I am, you get what you get. Both of these perspectives, both of these ideas that we kind of lean toward, or as we said, ping pong back and forth between these two, they're, they're riddled with two tendencies in our nature. And these two tendencies, we see all through scripture and the stories, we see through this process as we consider living a reflective life. And these two tendencies are the ways that we find ourselves getting stuck. And so before we finish this series, what we want to do is jump this hurdle, and we'll talk about what that hurdle is. We also want to give you a tool. You'll see the tool today, and we'll give you a, it was on your seat when you walked in. And then next week, we'll talk about two places in Scripture that give us an incredible amount of texture and feeling and definition to what it means to live out this tool that you have in your hands. And so these two tendencies that we struggle with, they're represented by these two ideas, but they're really more defined by these two words. The first is pride, and the second is insecurity. And both are at play when you hear those two statements. You know, you can hear, I am who I am, you get what you get, and I'm just trying to please everybody all at once, and you can hear these two ideas. Of, you know, one is pride, deeply embedded, I am who I am, and the other is insecurity. And at first glance, these seem like ideas or tendencies or feelings that are in opposition to each other, but they're not. In fact, they are almost the same. Pride and insecurity. They're two sides of the, the same coin. And the hurdle that's in the way is helping us understand why they're there and how to remove them. And scripture speaks to this over and over again. My guess is if we were to take a poll in the room, we were to ask the question, which of these do you struggle with more than the other? You could easily and quickly identify one of the two. You might say, well, you know, I, I don't have this very much, but I struggle with insecurity. And you could give me a story or two about work or your family or a recently failed relationship or something that is about that. Or maybe it has to do with the anxious nature that you walk with every day. And some of you would say, you know, this is my struggle. I, I do feel like I'm better than other people often. Mostly that's just because of the other people, but that's how I feel. <laughs> and then some of you would be able to recognize that these are similar and that you have experienced enough life to know that these two are inextricably linked, that they're connected to each other. And this is not just true in your profession or your relationships. These things are true in your life spiritually, in my life spiritually. And we see this in the spiritual world or in the church realm or our understanding of God or how we try to move forward in our walk with God. We see it in a thousand different ways. We find ourselves comparing sins with other people. And when we do this, we compare sins, we're trying to figure out where do we fit on the rank of who's the worst sinner in the room. We could have a little discussion today, couldn't we? We could all name our sins, our go-to sins, and we could decide... You know, maybe a, just put a gradient across the room. Worst sinners to my left and, you know, 
palatable centers to my right, and some of you would find yourselves in the middle, and you would look across the room, and you would think, oh, I feel, one way you would look, oh, I feel, I'm so glad I'm not as bad as they are. And then you would look to your other side and feel insecure about where you are spiritually. So we compare sins and we grade them. Some of us are in the habit of still trying to earn our own salvation, earn our way into God's good graces, earn our way so that God will finally say, well done, good and faithful servant, because we can't even imagine that those words would be spoken to people like us. Other people, sure, but to me, no, no way. And so we prop ourselves up because we feel insecure, and we critique others because that's a, one of the favorite Christian pastimes. And these two perspectives keep us focused on performance, morality, our ability to excel, and the ability of others to fail, and vice versa. And they keep us completely focused on the wrong thing completely. Because the question that we have Whenever we see pride and insecurity rising up, the question that we have isn't about sin or morality. It's not even about how somebody else behaves or how we behave. It's about identity or it's about worth. Or maybe if you drill down just one more layer, it's about love. Am I loved? Am I accepted? But as long as our focus is in this realm, we'll never jump the hurdle. And the idea of you engaging in a daily habit of reflection, well, not only will you hate it, not only will you resist it, but eventually you'll just get so weary of it because you're working in these realms and they're not, they're not helpful at all. So we have to figure out how to jump the hurdle. So, The passage that's in your program, it comes out of a a letter in the New Testament. It's 1 Corinthians. There's a a passage that bridges two chapters, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 on into 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me give you a little bit of context. The church in Corinth was a church of a bunch of people who were just like us. Many of them didn't have background in faith. A lot of them didn't have a Jewish heritage. They were new to faith. They were trying to understand faith. Paul helped plant the church. The apostle Paul did. And once he planted the church, he moved on. And other church leaders came in and began to lead this church. This church was like our church in this way too. It was messy, incredibly messy. Because it was made up of people. And we're people. And so that means it's messy. There's egos involved and there's insecurity and there's pride and there's shame and there's all kinds of things that made this church an incredible mess. Very different than a church that might be more rooted closer to Jerusalem or made up of people that lived a Jewish lifestyle and converted to the way, as they called it in the New Testament. Corinth was a church of all kinds. Paul had planted it, new leaders had come in, and they were leading this church. And over time, those believers in Corinth began to compare themselves to each other. And they would say, well, you know what? I was here when this church started. I've been here longer than you, and I know more than you. In fact, you know what? I was here when Paul started this church, and it was Paul that baptized me. 
And these people didn't know who Paul was. They had come into the church later and then they would retort back. You know what? I don't even know who Paul is. I've heard about him, but Apollos, our pastor now, he's the one that baptized me and I'm so much more spiritual than you. I can't believe that you would even think this. And so you can hear all of these words being riddled throughout 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians of pride and insecurity, of ego, of blame, of propping somebody else up spiritually, comparing your worth to somebody else, finding evidence that they are loved by God more than someone else. And in the middle of this passage, Paul says the most interesting thing. And and my guess is most of us haven't even read this passage. It took me a long time before I spent some time with it. But this gives us a glimpse of how to overcome this hurdle. Let me share this one verse to you, and then we'll give context around it, okay? Paul's writing this letter, 1 Corinthians. He's writing it to the church after he planted it, sees it's a mess. He looks back and says, we've got a problem, and here's how he wants to address the problem. He says this, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even, say it with me. Now, when you read the context around this verse, it all supports some of the things that Paul is going to help us understand and and grab hold of. But let's say it together so that you don't forget what Paul wrote to this young, messy, undisciplined, ego-driven, insecure church. Okay? Let's say it together. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even... What Paul gives us is a glimpse into how to overcome these hurdles of of pride and and insecurity. And if you're going to overcome them, uh, the hurdle that's in the way of thoughtfully considering how you live and how you love, and in fact, even inviting God into the process, then understanding what he's getting at is going to be kind of important for us today. The word that is in our English language, it was written in the Greek originally, the word in our English language is judge, and it's a great translation. Often we find the English language falls a little short to communicate Greek ideas, but this word judge is perfect because when Paul is describing this, the Greek word has to do with a courtroom setting. This is why he says, by you or any human court. Paul is saying that the life that he lives He finds himself in a position to where he cares very little if he's judged by you or anyone else or any human court. In fact, Paul goes so far to even say, I don't even judge myself. Now, this this word judged has to do with this courtroom setting and this idea that a verdict is announced. This is the kind of judging It's not the kind of judging where you pull up next to somebody at a stoplight and think, well, I'm glad I'm in my car and not in their car. That's a different kind of judging, okay? This judgment is a pronouncement of a final verdict. Paul says, you don't have anything to do with that verdict. In fact, Paul says, even he doesn't have anything to do with that verdict in his life. And so he wouldn't even begin to do it. In other words, when the people of Corinth are saying, Paul's not a good leader, I I was baptized by Apollos, or vice versa, and they're comparing their spiritual pedigree to one another, they're using one another to prop each other up and be better than, Paul decries all of it and condemns all of it and says, none of you 
have any merit to judge each other or me, nor do I. The final verdict is not up to you. So you hear in this history of Corinth and Paul's words, all of the language of of ego and pride and insecurity and comparison. And you see this with people that go to this church or that church, people that want to tell a story on someone else. Every now and then somebody will come to me and they'll say, Pastor, you should preach a lot more about sin. And I'll say, what are the sins that you're struggling with that you would like for me to preach on? Why are you laughing? I think it's a genius to say that. And they say, not my sin. I don't want you to do that at all. I want you to preach about their sin. Or another good one is, is, is this. Somebody will say, you know what? I, I think you ought to preach a lot more about hell. And I'll say... Why do you think you're going to hell? And they'll say, I'm not going to hell. You know what follows. This is the areas that we traffic in when it comes to our spirituality. We feel like we're only getting so far when we're in comparison to someone else. We feel like that we must find a way to earn God's final verdict. And Paul says, you can't determine that. Not for anybody else, not even you, you can't determine it. When Paul makes this claim, it is almost unimaginable to us that he would say this, that even he doesn't judge himself. It's almost unthinkable that he could take his, his ego and set it that far aside. That he could take his pride and dismantle it, destroy it. He says, I care very little if I'm judged. When you read this whole passage, you'll see that the entire passage is filled with language about insecurity, pride, and ego. He says things like, do not deceive yourselves. Of course, that's the hallmark of pride, that you've been deceived. No more boasting, he says. Then you will not be puffed up. And, and the word he uses in the passage Uh, You you get this picture of the big billow things that make a fire go bigger, you know, the little accordion-looking things that you you just pushes air. This is the ego that Paul is describing. It's full of hot air. And Paul wants everyone in the Corinth church to know that this must be slowly and thoughtfully dismantled, that pride and insecurity will be what gets in the way the language of I'm in and you're out and I'm better or even I'm less. And some of you, as we said, pride isn't your deal and security is your deal. And so you've been on the receiving end of overly spiritual people who'd like to play this game as well. And you've just been on the short end of that discussion. So Paul says, look, if this is what you do, you'll miss. You'll miss what matters most. You'll miss the beauty of what God is actually doing. Not only that, you will miss the freedom that God was to beckon you toward. And that is to become more like Jesus. And not so that you can earn a final verdict. That's not what Paul's talking about at all. In fact, Paul goes on to say this. This, Here's the very next part of this, this passage, the very next verse. He says this, 
My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who, what? And what Paul says is incredibly insightful. He says, my conscience is clear. I I believe in what Jesus did on the cross. I understand why I'm forgiven. It has nothing to do with my behavior. It's not that I haven't sinned today. Paul would say, I am the chief of what? I'm the chief of sinners. So if you think I've weeded out all the sin in my life, just hang around me for a minute and you'll notice. That's not true at all. So Paul says, my conscience is clear. Why? Because he's not sinning? No, he is, his conscience is clear because it is the Lord who judges me. And Paul believes it is the death of Jesus, the redemption of Jesus on the cross that has secured his final verdict. That that final verdict is in place and that it not only cannot be changed, it is there because of Jesus, not because of Paul. So whatever Paul does on a Tuesday doesn't affect that verdict. That doesn't mean that he won't reflect and move forward, but it does mean this that he will not judge himself. No judgment. Paul believes he's justified. Justified because of what Jesus did. Because of God's love. Paul believes that he was created in love, redeemed by love, and that he is secure in love. That's what he believes. And so Paul says, even I don't judge myself. And yet he'll turn right around in a few chapters. And even though he says, I don't even judge myself, he will also say, and we should examine ourselves. And so if you're thinking with me today, the question that you ought to be asking is, well, what's the difference between these two? And why are we being encouraged to do this and not this? And how do I know when I'm doing one and not the other? It's an important question that you ought to wrestle with. And you ought to wrestle with it because if you don't understand the difference, you'll find yourself stuck in pride and insecurity trying to earn your salvation and engage in spiritual efforts and endeavors only for the sake of your reputation. And that would lead you down the wrong road, back towards more pride and insecurity. Like we said, Paul says, I don't even judge myself. In other words, I don't pronounce a final verdict on myself. Only God does that. But I do examine myself. Final verdict, discernment. Those are the differences. Examine means that I can thoughtfully consider where I am, where God is taking me, and how I get from point A to point B. Or how God is shaping my heart and how he would like for me to be more, you fill in the blank, patient, kind, generous, loving, Characteristics clearly described in the New Testament is more like Jesus. And when we do that, not only do we find ourselves free from our own judgment, we find ourselves free from the judgment of others. If we understand it is God that has the final verdict. And we, we use discernment to find our way. This is what Paul is saying And this is important. It's one of the most keystone theological truths that you'll find in the New Testament that many believers miss and misunderstand, and it's this. Our identity comes from God, period. Our value, our worth, it all comes just from God. We are made in God's image by love, for the sake of love, 
and lured into a relationship by this unconditional acceptance that God offers to every person that bends their knee to who Jesus is. And when we acknowledge this and receive this redemptive love, that is our identity. It can't change. It's immutable. This allows us to experience the peace that passes all understanding. In fact, it's the only way that it can come. This is repeated over and over and over again in the New Testament. This is how Paul says it in Colossians. He says this, For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. It's a great verse. If you don't know it, you ought to jot it down. You could commit it to memory for as long as I'm going to leave it on the screen for just a minute or two. What is Paul saying? For you died to this life. What's he mean by this life? In this you are dead, one translation says. He's describing your ego, your insecurity. He's describing the big hot air billows that you try to puff yourself up with or maybe earn God's favor, your salvation. That life is dead, Paul says. If you've bowed your knee to Jesus, your real life, however, is hidden with Christ and God. That is your real life. Or, in other words, in today's language of the sermon, your identity. Here's how he says it in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ and what? Say it with me. I no longer live. You say this and yet you're drawing breath. What does he mean? I no longer live, but say it with me. Christ lives in me. And then he goes on to say this. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Your identity, your life is hidden in Christ. Your identity is Jesus. And this is true for you, all of your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is true. Capital T, true. All people, all places, all throughout history. And when this is understood, the freedom that comes... Well, it means you can allow yourself to be examined. And so understand very plainly that our identity comes from God. And this is true. While this is true, that our identity comes from God, the also truth is this, but we probably need a little help with some self-awareness. You might need some help for somebody to come alongside you and say, it seems like, and some, this, this self-awareness that we're describing, it comes from lots of places. It probably comes from the people that know you best, people in your family or coworkers that are around you the most. It comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes as a result of what David writes in Psalm 139, search me, God, know me, see if there's anything in me that is offensive to you. It comes from lots of places. And these are the ways in which our ego and our insecurity get in the way of our ability to love other people and love them well. How could we? become more like Jesus to the people that need this love more fully, more completely. And our identity is fixed, but self-awareness, well, it changes a lot for us and we need some help with it. And so to give you that help, we have rewritten an ancient tool. In fact, you have it on your seat. You can pick it up. On one side is the Lord's Prayer, but the side I want you to look at for just a moment is the Prayer of Examine. It comes from a uh, an ancient saint, his name is uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola. 
If you grew up Catholic, then you might be familiar with who St. Ignatius is. He was one of the three founders of the Jesuit order in the Catholic Church. He's, he's incredible. I love the Jesuits. If you haven't read some of the Jesuit stuff, it's worth your reading. doesn't mean you're Catholic. It means that you recognize the wide breadth of the body of Christ and that wisdom can come from many places. And so when St. Ignatius created what he called his spiritual exercises which formed the foundation of Jesuit life. He also created this prayer of examine. We have taken it and rewritten it and changed a thing or two, which we get to do because St. Ignatius did the same thing. He took an ancient prayer that came centuries before him and modified it to create his prayer of examine. And so as he was teaching groups of people in the ways of what would become, it wasn't even called this at the time, but they were just called Society of Jesus, Friends of Jesus. It eventually would become the Jesuit Order, which you're familiar with if you like college basketball, because they all are really smart and have great basketball teams, all right? Gonzaga and so on. Good Jesuit folks can also play ball. And in this, what would become the order, he would say, the prayer of examine is the first of the spiritual exercises that you can't avoid or can't ignore. In fact, whatever you do throughout a day, you should engage in the prayer of examine. I won't go that far, as as St. Ignatius did, but it is a good tool. In fact, there have been a few dozen of our friends here in our church that have been working on this over the last week, and we've gotten good feedback from them. And the various comments that we've received is, I've never become more aware of God's presence than when I engaged in this prayer. Or there was a conversation that came to mind later in the day that I think I would have otherwise forgotten, but God has drawn my heart back to it, and now I can go back and issue the apology that I think is needed. Lots of ways that God has allowed this to be used already, even in our church body. And so, uh, Debbie Vare uh, has created this bookmark for us, and you can tuck it away and use it. I'm going to talk it through with you just a little bit before we take communion together which is exactly the context that Paul's admonition to examine ourselves occurred in. And we're glad that you will get to experience that today. So if you're at home, you might want to gather your elements if you haven't already. But you can see the prayer of examine on your card, and it starts with this. This is a review of my day. And I'm about to review my day. I ask for the light to know God and to know myself as God sees me. It's a simple prayer, and you don't have to say all of these words, of course, but the heart of the prayer is this. I want to know you, God. It's a great prayer. And I want to see myself as you see me. In other words, some of you, when you are reflective and consider the path of your life and how God is at work, God's voice sounds an awful lot like your mother. And that may or may not be a good thing. Maybe he sounds like the priest you grew up with or the pastor that put you in a place of judgment. And I'm hearing to tell you this, that look, if God says to you, you know, you were such a jerk today, I think that was not the Holy Spirit that said it. The Holy Spirit might say, you know what, I think you owe somebody an apology, but for some reason, you have heard the voice of God and the judgmental voice that exists in your history. God will approach you, I believe, with truth, with gentleness, with love and mercy. And when he does, we respond to that love and mercy because the verdict is already in. The verdict is established. You don't have to earn your salvation. 
You don't have to earn God's love. It's a free gift. And so we begin with this truth. Our identity is from God and God alone, not based on who we are. So we begin with that prayer. And then we begin with gratitude. Thank you, God, for this day. Specifically, I'm thankful for, and we begin listing some of these things. And when we begin with gratitude, it resets our compass. It recalibrates our compass. We understand where the good things come from. We understand that even if we had a hard day, that there's still some beauty in the day, some things to be thankful for. But more than all of that, we recognize where these gifts have come from. We acknowledge it to God. Once we begin there, then we're ready to begin to reflect a bit. And so I review my day. I'm aware of my feelings, my words, my actions, and my interactions with others. Some of us are better at feelings than others. Some of us have a hard time putting a pinpoint to it or naming it. We just know that we felt a little uncomfortable, but it's good for us to get in the practice of naming those feelings, thinking about the conversations that we had, the actions that we took, interactions with other people. And so this is just a acknowledgement that part of the examine is centered around me recollecting and thinking about my day. Now, some of you are morning people. How many of you are morning people? Let me see your hands. How many of you are evening people? Let me see your hands. Usually you marry each other. That's how it works. Um, So if you're a morning person, you may, on a given morning, reflect on the previous day. The examine works great that way. If you're an evening person, then you may reflect on the day you just lived. The examine works great that way. Uh, It works excellent in both ways, but you should do it at the time when you're more thoughtful, a little more alert, a little more ready to engage in remembering and the sharpest that you might be. So this is how it begins. And then the language of Ignatius gives us these two things to think about when it comes to our day. The first is called, he called it, a consolation. And so you can think of it in a way that you were consoled, if you will. Not that you were grieving and hugged, but that could be part of it. But that you were consoled in that you experienced the closeness of God's presence. And it's good for you to name a time or an experience in your day that you experience the closeness of God's presence. And you could think of a dozen, I suppose, but I think what would be most meaningful if you got in the habit of thinking of one, maybe two, just to remind you not only that God is with you, but that he wants to be present and is present as you go through the experiences of your day. And this could happen when you go on a walk and you experience the beauty of creation. It could happen when you're in a conversation with a coworker and you really were completely present and you heard what they said and you encouraged them and you felt God was present in that conversation. It could happen any number of ways at any time possible. But we remember this because God is with us. And in that moment, his presence brings a richness and a depth and a texture to life that wouldn't otherwise be there. And so you name it, you ponder it. Some of you are journalers, you'll write this down. Some of you are all up in your head about stuff, so you'll just ponder it. So consolation. But then the other piece of the language that we've used for Ignatius specifically is a desolation. And it's a good word. It sounds a little more awful than it is, although it can create some tough circumstances for our life. Desolate. This is a moment during the day when Ignatius would say, you felt the absence of God's presence. That doesn't mean that God was absent. You know that God is omnipresent, right? And you know that he is always with you. 
right? But there are times in our day when we have either forgotten that God is with us or we on purpose have built a little imaginary wall in our mind in hopes that he would not be with us or we have just moved away from what we know to be good and right and true and turned a bit from God. That's a desolation. It could be a moment when you felt an absence of God's presence, acknowledging God, of course, is there and he's present all the time in every way. But I responded in a way that allowed my anxiety to take center stage. Or maybe my impatience because I needed what I needed when I needed it. It could be a a moment of unkindness. It could be a, a moment of frustration. It could be any number of things. And just like a consolation, it's not important that you name them all or go through every minute of your day, but you're asking God to bring one of these to light. And the reason you are is because there are moments when we fall short in living the life that Jesus wants us to live. And we can remember those moments, not in a judgment way, not in a way that moves us away from God or makes us feel condemned. That's not the idea at all. God brings these things to mind because he wants us to feel the freedom of not being anxious. He wants us to feel the freedom of showing love when really what we want to give is judgment to another person. God wants you to experience that love so that you give that love in turn. That's what the freedom is for. All of the freedom is so that we can experience freedom ourselves. That's exactly what Paul wrote. It is for freedom I have set you, what? Free. This is why. And so God gently brings these things to mind for us only for the purpose of taking the shackles off, the chains off. That's it. That's why. And for some of us, it might mean that we go back and say, hey, I blew it, sorry. For some of us, it might mean that we just do something different the next day, but we pray through it. It is our instant replay. And sometimes in that instant replay, we find out we were in bounds or maybe out of bounds. Consolation, desolation, both are there. And we consider it through the day. And then we pray this. God, I ask for your help to become more aware of your presence tomorrow that I may reflect your love and light to those around me. This is our hope. That's all we want to do. I'm gonna ask the folks that are serving communion to go ahead and make their way and get the elements and place themselves in the room at the right place. The reason this response is worded this way, it's similar to what Ignatius worded it as and many other versions worded it as. It's because this verse that's been so important to us is coming back into focus near the end of this series. We've used it every week of this series. In fact, let's say it all together. Are you ready? As we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Why would we not be afraid on the day of judgment? That's because the verdict is in. It's established. Your identity is fixed. Same as your other brothers and sisters in Christ. So there's no reason for judgment to be a part of the interaction, the conversation, or even your thought process at all. No judgment. In fact, 
we should be just like Paul. We don't even judge ourselves. Examine ourselves. We can step into that with freedom. And we can do that because we are loved. Unconditionally accepted. A part of the body of Christ. A part of the family. When Jesus established this meal, I can think of nothing more profoundly illustrative regarding his love. With his friends, he knew that they would feel a desolation as they saw him arrested. He knew that they would feel alone. He knew that they would feel forgotten and even forsaken. And so Jesus reminds them, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always be with you. And he established the the veracity, the truth of this new covenant. And he held up the bread of the Passover meal and he tore it in front of them, knowing that the next day they would see his own flesh torn. And he said, this is my body. Take it and eat, each one of you. He held up the cup of Passover. And as he did so, he brought it to his own lips and passed it around the table. And he said, This cup represents a new covenant. It's a new relationship with God. One that you cannot fall in and fall out of. You are in. This new covenant, this blood, was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And so he said, as it says on the front of this table, when you do this, do this to remember me. And we remember with our memory so that we can imagine walking with Jesus in new and powerful and profound ways. So today, when you receive these elements from one of your brothers or sisters in Christ, you receive the elements of love, evidence of love, the truth of love. It is the gifts of God for the people of God. And as we receive it, we are reminded that we belong here at this table. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you now in this moment of communion, recognizing that we belong, that the verdict is in, that we are forgiven, that we are the recipients of unconditional love bestowed by you, created in your love for the purpose of love. And today, as we partake in these elements together in this place and in many homes, some near and some far. We recognize that we are part of one body. Same as the other friends of ours that are in other churches in this very city and many other places. One body. One baptism, one Lord. Lord, we belong. And so Lord, as we partake of communion today, we ask that you would give us the courage and even the confidence and the humility to examine ourselves as Paul has implored. And that we would be thoughtful about our ways, that we would ponder the path that our feet are on, that we would live in this world and love in this world as Jesus has, that we would be like him in these ways. We ask this in the name of Jesus. We all say together, amen.